This is the Luke Thomas Show podcast. You can listen to the full show weekdays from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM Fight Nation Channel 156. Today on the Luke Thomas Show, I'm going to give you my big takeaway from the Shabazian and Brunson main event from the weekend. By the way, speaking of that fight, was that a bad stoppage or not? We will debate it. And what does it mean when Dana White says that the fighters who didn't get a chance to compete on Saturday because something went wrong in the process aren't going to get their show money, but they are going to get some money? We'll talk about it as well. The Luke Thomas Show airs weekdays at 1 p.m. East Coast time right here on Sirius XM Fight Nation, channel 156. And don't forget about the mailbag, Show at gmail.com. All right. Happy Monday to everybody here. Hope you're doing well. Man, what a wild weekend in, in uh, fight sports. Not necessarily the biggest one. I mean, this was not the you know return of Conor McGregor or something. Um, but it was, it was wild. So if you guys didn't follow the story, it's worth putting this out here for just a little bit. UFC lost. I mean, that's easily one of the most snake-bitten cards I think I've ever seen. So let's go through this for just a second. Um, Okay. Here are all the changes that happened before the card even really took place. Actually, that's not even true. The card had actually started and fight still fell out. Let me go through it. So first, Marcus Perez lost his opponent, Eric Spicely, because of weight cut complications. And then the Nevada Commission didn't allow replacement Charlie Ontiveros to compete. Spicely, by the way, didn't make weight because he's on antidepressants. He says from damage related to the Duran win fight, UFC cut him today. So take that for what it is worth. Not great, but I guess to be expected on some level, I suppose. So that fell out. Nate Maness and Jamal Emmers saw their opponents, Ray Borg and Timur Valeev, They both withdrew, and then they got new matchups on Friday against newcomers Johnny Munoz and Vincent Cachero. Okay, so those are just least some changes. Then a light heavyweight bout between middleweights Ed Herman and Gerald Mearshart got promoted to the main card, but then canceled when Mearshart tested positive for COVID, I think on that Friday or Saturday. So they lost that one. The main card opener between Kevin Holland and Trevin Giles was canceled after Giles fainted just moments before the fight was set to take place. It was reported uh, later by Dana White that uh, he called Herman to see if he could actually fight Holland, but Herman was already somewhere outside of the quarantine getting drunk. So that one couldn't go through. Joanne Calderwood fainted backstage after her first round loss to Jennifer Meyer. We'll talk about that a little bit later, which is only just weird. And according to the broadcast, there were 10 pauses in action due to low blows in the eight fights that occurred. And only one of those low blows resulted in a point deduction. Uh, Of course, that's not even including the fact that this card was supposed to be headlined by Holm versus Aldana as its main event. Plus, there were withdrawals by Jun Yong Park, Da Ung Jung, Vivian Arujao, and Luke Sanders, all of which happened in the past two weeks. 
pretty incredible that they were even able to keep this 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 train on the tracks. To be to be to be honest with you, the fact that that card even took place, <laughs> you know, something of a minor miracle, if I do say so myself. So if you watch some UFC this weekend, you know, you got kind of lucky, I guess. I mean, it was an unlucky card, but the fact that it even lived on at all is frankly a minor miracle. I mean, this is one of the things you got to give UFC a little bit of credit about, which is some might say they should have canceled it when the guy tested positive for COVID, but I don't think anyone else did. And my understanding is once they do the second test, there's quarantining until you get the results. So it's like after the weigh-ins. So I think that's what happened, um, although that needs to be double-checked. But the basic point being is, um, you know, you could have said, ah, we lost so much, what's the point in keeping going? And, you know, credit to, well, I shouldn't say credit, but, you know, part of the reason why the UFC is doing this, let's just be real, is because they got to beat a certain quota to get that money from ESPN. Okay, but you still had eight fights. You know, would you have rather them canceled it versus keeping it on? I doubt it. You probably are glad they kept it running, at least in the haggard state that it was with a three round main event and all that. You know, they still did what they could. Um, it's amazing. It's completely amazing that they have that kind of dexterity and depth to do something like that. So you're not going to see situations like that very often. You know, where you lose your main event, you uh, you lose multiple fights on the main card. A main card fight is about to start and someone faints. The most famous of those, by the way, would be when Kevin Randleman hit his head on a pipe walking out to one of his fights and they had to cancel it like literally right then as he was walking out. I don't know if you guys have ever heard that story, but it's true. Rest in peace to the late Kevin Randleman, but that did in fact Handelman, uh, happen. Excuse me. So it brings us to the... Uh, culmination of a very weird card but i gotta tell you the main event was really interesting uh edmund shabazian on a hype train that of all hype trains and by the way you know let's just cop to it while we can i think everyone in this show and certainly me was on that hype train all of us were on it looking at it and saying wow this kid is the future he's so good he can't lose as long as it's on the feet. And he did look much better on the feet, to be clear, than he did anywhere else. You know, that part is, I think, still maybe overstated, but not totally wrong. I mean, he landed a couple of really nice body kicks on Brunson. And there was a couple times when Brunson started trading with him where it got a little weird. Got a little weird for him. He was getting tagged, and I was like, Brunson... You know you're not supposed to be doing this, but to his credit, he righted the ship and he made it work. And so, out of respect for that, let's do now my big takeaway. Luke Thomas has examined the fights, studied the film, listened to the interviews, and made his decision the biggest lesson he learned over the weekend. Fights like that are the reason we watch MMA. This is the big takeaway on the Luke Thomas Show. All right, time now for the big takeaway right here on the Luke Thomas Show. And the question of what all of this means for Shabazian is a function of what Derek Brunson did, right? Because what Derek Brunson does and doesn't do has a big impact on what, on what Shabazian is and isn't able to show. So what do I mean by that? Okay, how did Brunson win? 
basically is the, the point I'm trying to raise. A few different ways. Um, but the first thing I'd say is, if you'll notice, a lot of his attacks all came from the left side, which makes sense because he's left-handed. He would push and circle into his left hand uh, very often, although not always. But the big keys are the things he did right more than just the tendencies. You know, he would, yes, he would fire from the left on the clinch break and, you know, he, uh, kicks or punches all came from the left side. He did a little bit of jabbing from the right, but not much. But the, the key to it was he just disguised everything really well. You couldn't tell if it was an inside leg kick coming or it was a body kick or it was a teep. It all kind of looked the same, which made defense to it a little bit hard. He threw all of them enough in a proactive way so as to make Shabazian have his rhythm disrupted. Right? It was constantly getting uh, you know, restarted and restarted, especially off of a turn. Right? They would sort of turn and then come to a bit of a stop, and then Brunson would let him have it uh, right like that. A-, a lot of times he was also going to the body, which paid dividends because it drained the gas tank of Shabazian, but then he would lean really heavily over to go to the body. He would change his level to do it, and then he would mix it up the next time, throwing a punch that looked like he was going to the body, but it would be an overhand left. So just like his kicks, he was disguising his punches by making everything look kind of similar. So he disguised everything. He had a high volume, high work rate. He was constantly disrupting Shabazian. And when Shabazian got too close, he would clinch up with him. If Shabazian tried to press him backwards along the fence line, he always moved away. He just had good cage control good cage generalship he had a good game plan it was just it was just really smart because the couple of times where he began to exchange with Shabazi and especially in that second round you'll note that Shabazian was opening up a little bit on him. Shabazian kind of, it looks to me, waits for guys who want to exchange with him and then also don't move their feet when they defend. Brunson was very good about, he might bring his hand up and stay there, but what he mostly did was bring a hand up, parry with the other hand, and then use his feet to circle away. And, and in between those times, he was fainting, 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 constantly getting Shabazian to address it and then back up. So he might back up himself off of a kick or an attack from Shabazian, but it was only because he had created space first. And so how did he close the show? Eventually he got takedowns. To me, along the fence line is where he did his best work. He did land at range, but the best work was done along the fence line, and then he took him down. And when he took him down, he immediately got wrist control, either cross side or same side. And from there, he'd get a control position, pound on him until Shabazian moved. He'd set up a new control position, pound on him until Shabazian moved. And then a couple times as he began to weaken, you'll note there was one time where he had a handcuff, uh, wrist control, and he had a Turk, a real Turk, not a half guard like Mike Goldberg likes to call it, an actual Turk, and used it to turn Shabazian and then just go to work on him from that top position, eventually moving to mount and then polishing him off there. Now, we will talk about the stoppage in the third round. Should it have been in the second? And if so, why? A little bit later in the show. I bring all of this up to say what about Derek Brunson? We'll talk about how we overlooked him a little bit later, too. But what does the way in which he beat Shabazian tell us about Shabazian? Well, number one, the guy is only 21 years old. He's got a lot of room for improvement. A lot of room for improvement. We see this all the time with guys. Granted, this was his, what, fifth fight in the UFC. But if you see a lot of guys who have a lot of fights, not a lot of fights, you know, but let's say around 10 or so, give or take, and they're mostly ending in the first round, 
and um, you know they're all KOs or TKOs. It, it, you're dealing with somebody very formidable, but it tells you that they haven't fought enough tough guys yet. And now, usually, that's more of a problem when someone is coming from the regional scene and then moving up to the UFC it becomes less of a problem in UFC. But UFC has kind of expanded their reach into a level of prospect that probably they wouldn't necessarily have done before. Now, in fairness to the UFC as well, the guy beat and not only beat but like smoked. Brad Tavares, who's a very, very talented, credentialed, experienced fighter. And I think a lot of us, me included, guilty as charged, thought that that meant that this guy might be ready to take the next step. Let's see how he does against Brunson. Sure enough, he's not. That those concerns that people might have had were well-placed. So the first thing it tells me about him is, one, the guy just needs more experience in general, just needs more reps, and he needs fights to go longer. He's had, this is the second time in his UFC career his fight has gone past the first round, and in both times, his cardio didn't look great. Now, you could forgive him in the Darren Stewart fight because he wrestled a lot, and he didn't really gas until the third. It was his UFC debut, so you're like, okay, understandable. But his gas tank didn't look good here. Part of that is because Brunson was making him work, both in defending the takedown and in the body work. But okay, still, it could be better, number one. Number two, it tells me that he didn't really have a second gear to go to, at least not yet. Again, we're talking 21. When I say he doesn't have something, I'm talking about the present version of himself, not the one that will always be there. Right? So to be very clear about the nature of your, of your criticism and mine, it has to be tempered by the fact that he still has a lot, a lot of time and room to get much better than he is today. But what I mean to say is you had a lot of glove control, a lot of hand fighting. Remember, they had open stance. So a lot of the pawing from Derek Brunson, a lot of the reaching of that over and over again, you know, it kind of shut him down. The leg kick kind of shut him down. The teeps kind of shut him down. The body kicks... He just had to reset. He couldn't quite get going. It looks like he likes to, uh, Shabazian, build on momentum, something of a rhythm fighter, right? It's what he likes to do. And Brunson took all of that away. He didn't really have a second gear to answer for that, whether he was leading or whether he was countering. Now, it turns out he did better when he was leading than the opposite. It, it, Brunson did better when he was being the proactive one, but still... There just wasn't enough of it. Second of all, the takedown defense, he has some decent wrestling. Brunson is a very good wrestler, but when you can mix in the threat of the striking and the way that he was doing, when you can mix in the feints and you can get someone backed up in the way that he was doing it, you know, that's something to be worked on. He was backing up way too easily, way too easily. Brunson was backing him up sometimes with punches. Sometimes he'd just back him up with a couple of feints and then a lazy inside leg kick. It shouldn't be that easy to get you behind the two black lines. So that's something to work on as well. Didn't quite have a second gear, was getting backed up a little bit too easily. It just looks to me like when he can get into a rhythm and people are exchanging with him and they can go back and forth tit for tat, that's a really bad way to fight Edmund Shabazian. He will win more often than not if that's the circumstance. But if you slow things down, if you lead the dance and you constantly interrupt the rhythm and you're changing the timing and you're all over the place and you can disguise what you're doing and you can push someone around, if not quite literally, although sometimes that was the case, but then uh, through, through your fakes and your feints, that says a lot. By the way, when he would go for the takedowns, a lot of times it would be kind of center and he'd have to push him back or he'd be the one getting pushed back. He would turn, he would collapse, I should say, into Shabazian. And then turn him into the cage. So that's what I mean by veteran moves. And, and there were times when Shabazian got away. And, and Shabazian had his moments. Like I mentioned, I had a vicious body kick 
I think within the first 20 or 30 seconds of the second frame, that was nice. And, and he was beginning to pick up on Brunson, uh, Brunson's timing a little bit. Do you guys notice Brunson was throwing a lot of like left kicks and then he'd throw a left hand right behind it, right? So same side attacks and then he would stagger the timing. Eventually, Shabazian caught on to that and was, and was connecting on Brunson whenever he tried it. But it wasn't enough. So to me, the guy just needs reps. He needs reps out there. He needs time. He's obviously formidable when folks want to trade. He's formidable when you want to open up. But if you keep things closed down and you set the terms of when you open up and you can disrupt his timing and push him around physically in the grappling department, he's, he's got work to do. He's got work to do. He, he looked good in spots. <clears throat> excuse me. Not good enough. Not nearly good enough. Could have used a lot more out of him. But the good news is, at 21 years of age, and already showing the kind of promise that he has, it would be equally foolish to bury him. We, 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 we praise prospects too early, and we bury them too early. And I'm guilty probably of doing that on both counts, if not just with Edmund Shabazian, um, but with other prospects as well. But let's realize he, he lost to a very credentialed, experienced fighter who's on a three-fight win streak, who trains in one of the best teams in the world. And you can tell he did not win, Derek Brunson, by accident. He won for a very good reason. He won because he was just the better guy with the better skills, the better game plan. He knew how to fight for Edmund Shabazian. I don't think Edmund Shabazian knew how to fight Derek Brunson. And that made all the difference in the end. 877-FIGHT-93, 877-344-4893. We've got Kevin in Chicago. Hi, Kevin. You're on the Luke Thomas Show. Luke, I want to know, how does a 22-year-old gas out in five minutes? That just... He, he needs to get his blood test. Something's wrong there because there's no reason why a 22-year-old should be gassing out in five minutes. Um, but what I think this comes down to is Derek Brunson, he, after that Israel Adesanya loss, I wish he would have started training with um, Henry Hoof before that fight because as soon as he started training with Henry Hoof down at uh, Sanford MMA, his game, he's been looking really good with his patience, uh, just really well-rounded. And he's um, really looking good, look, coming to his own, even at his late age, 37, 38 years old. Um, as far as Shabazzian goes, this is the first time he's fought a wrestler. You look at his other fights, and it's all been stylistic matchups. Darren Stewart, another plotting guy. Um, Brad Tavares, that was a tailor-made fight for him, a slow, plotting brawler that he could pick apart. Um, this guy, Derek Brunson, just didn't play into his style. Lots of movement and able to clinch him when he needs to, and he gassed out in five minutes. That's, I don't know how he, that happened. He needs to figure that out because that's not a good sign. But what do you think about that? Yeah, no, yeah, and I mentioned he had gassed in the Darren Stewart fight, but that was somewhat understandable for the reasons I mentioned. It was really wrestling. I think he had something like 11 takedown attempts or even takedowns in that fight, something absurd. Right, so you could you could imagine you wrestle for that long, especially in your UFC debut. Yeah, it's going to take a toll. But you're right, the cardio did not look super awesome this time. Who knows if he had an injury or something else? Who knows? Formula One Racing on Sirius XM. Precision. 
performance and speed. The F1 Series opens Sunday. It's the Austrian Grand Prix. Pre-race coverage starts at 8 a.m. Eastern. Then go live to the track at 9 Eastern for turn-by-turn -turn racing action, followed by a complete post-race recap. Hear it on Dan Patrick Radio Channel 211 or at home with Amazon Alexa, Google Assistant, or however you stream in the house. All right, what did you guys think of the Shabazian and the Brunson stoppage? Did you like it? Did you hate it? 877-FIGHT-93, 877-344-4893. What did you think? All right, Cobb, let's talk about this. Did you like the stoppage? Did you hate the stoppage? Where are you on the uh, continuum? And I think before you answer that, both of us would probably agree I don't find this one nearly as contentious uh, as the one from Fight Island. No. I mean, I think the big argument is, do you stop that fight at the end of round, what was it, two? Two, yeah. Um, and then that one, for me, it's a bit borderline. Shabazzian was taking punishment, but he was trying to move a little bit. It was near the end of the round. I think Herb was trying to give him every chance to get to the end of that round and just kind of clear his head within the begin, uh, you know, in the middle between between rounds. Um, I thought the stoppage was fine. It did look like Shabazzian was in a bad way again. He got taken back down again. He was, you know, Brunson had his back to land and strikes. I did wonder though, how much longer that round might have gone on had there not been a controversy last week. Right. All right. So here is my view on this. Would love to get your uh, thoughts. 877-FIGHT-93, 877-344-4893. I do not think this is equivalent to some of the concerns related to um, the Trinaldo and Herbert fight. And the reason why is because the two crushing blows happen near the bell. You can argue if you want the fight should have been stopped there, but it's not the same as we're just in the middle of a round and we're waiting on this dude to get bludgeoned. Like the time, the clock is not going to save you in that case. And I know it's not supposed to ever save the fighter, but it will certainly uh, force a referee intervention. If you're done, they can call it, but they can't just keep punching you after the bell. He could have just kept hitting him and he did. So to me, they, these are not equivalent situations for many reasons, one including that. Two, Herb took a long look at that guy between rounds. Now we had the other caller asking... Shouldn't you have, if you're Brunson, cause for being a little bit upset because they had this timeout that extended the, the break, essentially, between the first and second round? I don't think that that's crazy, but that doesn't feel like, to me, the hill to die on. Number one, he went out there and just bludgeoned him into the third round anyway. And number two, I think in Herb's defense, you can argue it was a little bit unclear exactly what happened to him. I'll talk about that in a second, Shabazian. At the end of the second, he was waiting to see exactly what he was looking at. And in addition to inspecting him, he called in the doctor so the doctor could have a look. Now, if you want to say that the doctor also was wishy-washy and letting this guy just say things that he knew he didn't believe and you had real concern for him, you can do that. I don't think I would necessarily get in the way. The doctor seemed indecisive. I mean, the doctor doesn't need to talk to you that long. The fact that he was talking to him that long, he was waiting to hear something confidence-inspiring, and I guess eventually he got enough to let it rock. To me, it's like, if you're doing that, it's time to call it. Third, even if you're mad at Herb and the doctor, the fight did go to the corner between the second and third. 
Meaning, by the time the third round started, if you want to be mad at Herb, you can be. If you want to be mad at the doctor, you can be. You better put some blame on the corner, too. So for these reasons, this is not at all like last week or whatever Fight Island was to me. I don't think these are remotely equivalent. Because all these different pieces matter. Herb did take the time to bring in a doctor. And maybe the doctor should have been more decisive. But at least that fighter got the benefit of having a doctor look at him. His corner had an opportunity, especially for a young fighter like that, 21 years old, and he was getting bombed on. You know, if you, it's later in your career that you don't want to throw the towel. Or sorry, um, yes. Or, you know, not at the very, very end of it, but in that middle stage where you're a little bit more senior, you're a little bit more experienced. You're probably fighting the bigger and better opponents for the bigger prizes. That's when you're a little bit resistant to it. But when they're 21 and they've never been to the third round, that's, that's your moment, and they didn't do it. So you better be pointing some fingers at Edmund Tarverdian and everyone else in that corner for not pulling that trigger. For those reasons, even if you wanted to blame Herb, the fact that there is, at worst, mutual failings all the way around, you could argue Herb had failed, but if you are doing that, you are also arguing that the screen provided by the doctor wasn't enough and the screen by the corner was negligent. Meaning, however much blame Herb has, he is sharing it with everybody else. Which by definition means he doesn't have as much as he had from Fight Island. They are, they are not equivalent scenarios. Not at all. Now the question really goes to, was Shabazian... Was he knocked out at the end of the second? Was that the time to call it? Now, the, the, the stoppage technically happened in a way that I doubt few cared about, which is to say, maybe you thought it should have been stopped before the third round, but if it was going to happen in the third round, it wasn't like Dean waited around. I mean, if you go and look at Shabazian's stats, he did nothing. He got hit a few times, and he was being taken down, and Herb Dean immediately intervened and was like, yeah, 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 this guy is totally done. Okay, but the question is, should he have intervened before that? 877-FIGHT-93, 877-344-4893. To me, to me, here is what this comes down to. I actually feel like Dean's... Dean could have stopped it. But I also think that it's close enough where letting it go is understandable. Um, and having it go the way it did was understandable. Folks have asked, didn't it look like Shabazian got knocked out at the end of the second? You know, if you just watch it up until when the bell rings and then that last shot goes through from Brunson, it does kind of look like that. The problem is Shabazian just gets up immediately. I mean, he, well, at least he rolls to his base immediately. And so the question is, okay, well, did he get knocked out a few before that? And then the last one woke him up. I don't know, man. The last one had him laid him flat. It turned him flat. So I don't know. I don't know how I feel about that. That's a, again, if you want to intervene there and call it there, I don't think that's a problem. I'm not going to be like, oh, that's early. No, that's okay. And I would generally say earlier is better. If you want to argue it's a late stoppage, I guess I would say 
Yes, but it's not like criminally late. It's not like egregiously late. Trust me, I have seen much later than that. I think that's what I would say. So the way I look at this is I actually don't focus on that. Cobb, do you know what I noticed in this fight? I wonder if you saw it as well. What's that? End of the sec okay, so end of the second round, Shabazian's getting bombed on, right? Bell rings as Brunson is throwing that last shot. Did you see what Herb did right after that? Uh, you mean like as the round ended? Yes. Yeah, I think I know what you're talking about. Because I think Dan Hardy pointed this out in his video that he did that move where it didn't quite look like he was saying the round's over. It looked like he was saying he was calling it. Right. He waved. Now, he didn't, he didn't wave it off in a way that you would wave it off if, you know, uh, you were really calling it off. You know what I mean? Like, oh, my God, I am, I am fully declaring that I am intervening here. He didn't do that, but he did wave. And so I've gone back and looked at other fights where he was refing and what he did between rounds that were, you know, competitive but not controversial in this way. I don't see him waving. So I wonder if he started to wave and then thought better of it and thought, ah, you know what, maybe I, maybe I don't want to wave this off. Let me give this guy just enough of a chance to see if he can do this. That is what I think happened. And to me, that is the issue. It's not so much like if you wanted to find like, what is the common denominator between this situation and the one on fight Island? I I just told you how different they were. And I do not think they are equivalent. They are absolutely not equivalent at all. You can't put any blame on any doctor in the Fight Island one. You can't put any blame on the corner because they would have had no time to intervene. A corner intervenes after a prolonged beating. And in this one, the fight ended, or at least the round ended. Corner, guys go back to their corners. Everyone had a chance to intervene here and didn't. The, pro, the, the one commonality, though, is a lack of decisiveness leading to a prolonged fight. And in this case a vicious beating, not a long vicious beating, but you know, let's call it unnecessary punches, unnecessary damage, both in the Trinaldo fight and in this one, because in the Trinaldo fight, Trinaldo decked Herbert. He goes tumbling. Dean stands over him. Trinaldo is waiting for Dean to intervene. Dean doesn't. And so he just polishes him off. Okay. In this one, on the other one, he, you know, it looked like he was about to wave it off, and then at the last second was like, maybe I'll let it go. Now, I do not know if that is true. I do not know if that is true. I'm just pointing out, I don't recall seeing him wave like that as a marker between ordinary rounds. It looked to me, and that's all I can tell you is what it looked like. He had the intention of waving it off and then had second thoughts. And I don't mind those second thoughts, especially because maybe you should have second thoughts. And he brought in the doctor. I think for those reasons, you have to temper your criticism of what he did. And I know that that job cannot be easy. And it's especially not easy if you're him where, you know, two weeks in a row, you're getting murdered online for what could be a defensible call in either case. I don't think that both are defensible. I think this one's probably a little bit more defensible than the other one. But still, it can't be easy. By the way, we got Dana White reacting to this. Let's hear what he had to say. 
Shabazzian looked like he was out at the end of that round. You know, um, I think that the doctor could have stopped. First of all, the doctor's obviously inexperienced. You know, I, I don't know anything about the doctor, but I haven't seen him before. You, you got Brunson, who ends that round strong. Many could argue that fight could have been stopped right there at the end of the round. I'm sure the ref thought the guy would have time to go back. What you don't do is talk to the guy for fucking 10 minutes while he's hurt. You know what I mean? Either stop the fight or let him continue, but go. You know, you're letting the kid recover while you got Brunson who just did that work and he's waiting for the bell to ring so that he can go in and finish the fight. Pull the trigger one way or the other. Stop the fight or don't. Agreed. Completely agreed. I think Dana's 1,000% on the mark here. You need somebody in that role, and I know it's not easy, but you need somebody in that role that can make that call one way or the other, not merely for the benefit of what Brunson had done for himself in that second round, but also for the fighter, like this sort of prolonged thing where you're, you know, you're playing Marco Polo looking for biological indications that they are okay and or still want to do this. If it takes you that long to figure it out, it took you too long. You should have a pretty clear sense of that right away. Especially since it wasn't like a blurred vision issue. I know he got poked in the eye accidentally once, but that wasn't what the issue was between rounds. You, know, you weren't trying to see, like, let the guy kind of blink it out a little bit. That's not what you were doing. You were just trying to assess this guy's readiness and fitness for that next round. And by the way, they made the wrong call, to be quite honest with you. If you're the doctor, how do you let that one go knowing what you saw in the third round where literally, and I'm not exaggerating, Shabazian did nothing, nothing offensive. They should have stopped it. They should have stopped it. So they got it wrong. But I guess I'm just trying to point out the one thing I think you really can get on Herb, if you want to argue it's defensible and he tried to put in as many other screens as possible to let other people pull the trigger if they felt like it was something that they needed to do. And it was, you know, very much unlike some of the other situations that we've seen recently. I don't think that's the worst argument in the world. I really don't. It's a hard job. He gave the guy an extra shot. He brought in a doctor. I mean, that's, that's a level of concern and urgency that I appreciate. And as I mentioned, once he got going again in the third, he waived it. The thing that gets me is the lack of decision stick to itness waving the hand like that mm, don't know about that folks i do not know about that don't like that one not one bit and that's the issue for me because you're going to see that again not so much the hand waving but the lack of decisive decision making you know it's kind of funny if you watch other sports all sports have a certain amount of language that they use to describe their athletes doing certain activities or being in certain states. And if you watch enough soccer, what you realize is there's two words that people um, use all the time when they use them in ways that they don't in other sports. One is uh, like, like class, like he showed his class and they don't mean like his manners. They mean like his skill level. That's one that they do. Uh, but the other one is they always talk about confidence uh, and particularly of the uh, players who are strikers, the ones who are in front of the goal, like a Messi or a Ronaldo or something, because they really believe in that sport that you have to have not just a talented player, but somebody who really has high levels of confidence. 
somebody who, you know, the home crowd cheers no matter what, who, you know, needs to get easy goals against bad teams if they're in a slump. Kind of like how a, a batter gets into a slump in baseball. And if their confidence affects them, they can't get right. But they talk about it all the time in soccer. I, I wonder if that affects referees in the same kind of way, to be honest with you. I really do. Because that dude got butchered and felt enough to respond to Dan. And here he is in another situation, which I'm sorry, y'all. Some people are like, oh, my God, it's so clear what happened. I'm not saying that he couldn't have stopped it and we wouldn't have thought it was good. Probably that's true. And when I, when I say that, I mean at the end of the second. But it's not super clear. In fact, the reason why this job is hard is that a lot of these situations have at least some degree of not black, not white, but gray in them. And this one did. And he tried to be deferential to it. And he did bring in the doctor. It's why I don't think that killing him for this one is the best. Maybe the Fight Island one, okay. But not this one. A lot of different hands in that failure pot. The experts of MLB Network Radio. When you get fooled by a pitch, you think, okay, let me wait longer. Steve Phillips. And then what ends up happening is you wait too long for the foot striding forward, hitting the ground, the hands going back. You then rush to get to everything. And the only way to get there is to pull off the ball to try to get your hands through. And the outer third of the plate is lost to you. Baseball talk at the next level. MLB Network Radio, Sirius 209, XM 89, and on the Sirius XM app. So we started the show talking about how weird and snake-bitten this card was for Saturday, right? There were a gazillion fights that had fallen out, and some, you know, had fallen out far in advance. Others had fallen out. You know, a couple of days before, a day before. Some, like the Trevin Giles and Kevin Holland fight, fell out just moments before the fight was supposed to get started. So, you know, it's just a whole range of them. But someone asked Dana White about this. Cobb, I don't think we have the audio, do we? We don't have the audio for this? We do. I don't think so. We do. We do. So, okay, so hold on a second. So somebody asked Dana White about, hey, are the fighters who didn't compete, but, you know, were there for the most part, uh, you know, or if the fight fell out because their opponent fell out and they had no fault of their own, um, are they going to get paid? Here was his answer. Uh, so these guys that didn't fight tonight, they all they got paid some money, and we're trying to turn these guys around. I think Holland's going to fight next week, so they got paid some money, and then they didn't get their show money though. Okay, so they got some money, not show money. Now, how should you view this? Uh, well, it depends on how much the money is and how fast they can get a turnaround, I would say. But I want to be clear about something. And it's going to sound like I'm bashing. I mean, I'm certainly not a fan of the UFC's contracts as it relates to the fairness towards fighters. But let me just clear something up here. It gets old coming on this show or any other show that I do and talking about the state of UFC contracts. I mean, we can sit here and bitch about them all we want. But it is what it is. They're a business. They're going to take care of their interests. And if the fighters don't take care of theirs, this is what it's going to look like. Who can fix this problem? The fighters. Because the media raises these issues all the time. And it has been proven over and over again. By ourselves, we cannot fix this problem. So here is what it looks like. There actually is no such thing as show and win money. 
if you look at a UFC bout agreement, and I have read, uh, well, I've certainly not read every bout agreement, but I've read many, many contracts. And the bout agreements that I have read all had the same clause. And what the clause calls for is not show and win, but your win and then your, uh, uh, your purse, essentially, and then your bonus. And the bonus, of course, is as described. It's usually, not always, but usually double the um, bonus you get for um, uh, bout completion. Actually, they shouldn't call it your win. They just call it your purse, right? And then the second one you get is your bonus because you might lose, but you still get paid, right? So it's, I think it's called purse and bonus, but it's not called show and win. And the key insight there is one, it doesn't have the, the names show and win anywhere in the contract, and number two, the other key consideration here to remember is that um, in addition to simply not having uh, any of those names, you don't get the first of them until you complete the bout. So in other words, you'll recall Tony Ferguson, I forget which one it was, maybe the third time he was trying to fight Khabib. I think it was UFC 209, right? I think that's right. And Khabib you know, uh, couldn't go to the weigh-ins because he went to the hospital, but Tony had weighed in. I mean, this is not Tony's fault in any capacity, right? How much money did he get? Um, he is not entitled to anything by, by virtue of the contract he signed. The contract, you'll read it, clearly stipulates you get your uh, purse upon completion of the bout, and if you win, you get the bonus. Well, the bout didn't get complete, did it? So he would not be entitled to anything. Now, I didn't hear Dana say it here, but I have heard him say it in other forms, which is we, we pay guys beyond what their contract calls for. Well, this is not always. Sometimes these bonuses, I'm sure. I am sure that in the history of the UFC going beyond what the contract calls for have been quite generous at times. It would be foolish to suggest otherwise. In this particular case, though, he is technically right. If you look at their bout agreements and their contracts, I am sure for everyone who got a little bit of money here, it does not call for any money to be paid unless the bout is complete. Well, the bout wasn't complete. So when, again, he did not make this claim here, but in the future you'll probably hear, a lot of times the UFC will say, we pay more than what the contract calls for. At times, that probably has demonstrated uh, a, a great degree of generosity here. I would call it, <laughs> you know, yeah, it's easy to pay more than what the contract calls for when the contract is so absurdly one-sided. It's like, yes, you are technically doing things that neither party forced the other one to do. That is true. Okay. But you know, if you are a UFC fighter and you are training in the middle of a pandemic and you're seeing literally on this card, Gerald Mearshart could not compete because his second COVID test came back positive. So you're training in these situations. You're having to live in these situations. It's incredibly risky and weird. And again, I'm not so much worried about a UFC fighter, you know, getting some kind of terminal illness because they catch COVID, but it's just not good for business because you can't fight at a bare minimum. You don't know who you spread it to, and but we've been over this a million times. It's just not good for business, I think is the bare minimum I would say about it. Um, you know, you're taking on an additional amount of risk. And like, what if you're not like Mearshart, where, you know, you're like Tony Ferguson, where you actually made weight and your opponent couldn't. 
you did literally everything imaginable. And in this current environment, you did it in a way where you accepted far more risk than anybody else ordinarily has to. Oh, by the way, you're fist fighting for a living. You know, the idea that you wouldn't even get your show money for that seems kind of ridiculous. Now, as I started this whole segment, I'm going to say it one more time. I can call this ridiculous until I am blue in the effing face. Doesn't change anything. Won't change anything. The only people who can fix this are the fighters themselves. That is it. And if they don't want to, well, then welcome to your substandard paycheck. Y'all are the only ones who can do anything about it, and you don't. And by the way, Cobb, refresh my memory from the weekend. Was it the athletes in the Pac-12 college kids who have gotten together and put a a series of demands out that are going to have to be met both for COVID safety as well as relative uh, social issues before they're ready to play again? Did I get that right? You got that right, sir. Yeah. Amazing that a bunch of college kids can do this. And fighters can't. And by the way, they're not colleges, college kids on the same campus. It's all over from the Pac-12. Okay, but you know, neither here nor there. So you could sit here and blame the UFC all you want for these unfair contracts. They're not very, they're one-sided. I mean, you can call it what it is. They are one-sided deals. But they're going to remain one-sided until the other party does something about it. But just so it's clear, the UFC is half right. They are paying people more than they have to. Those contracts, remember, show and win. And I don't know where show and win came from. I don't know why we call it that because it is not listed in their, in their bout agreements and in their deals ever. You'll, you'll never see that language. Uh, I mean, you might see win, but it describes something totally different than, than what you see uh, elsewhere. There's no show win dichotomy uh, in the way that it's set up in our, in our language. It, it is a very different system. So when they go above and beyond what the contract calls for, they don't have to do that. Let's be clear. They are choosing to do that. I would just like to point out, you shouldn't have to rely on a promoter's generosity when a one-sided contract doesn't cover the cost and risk of what fighters are trying to do when things go wrong either for them or in situations that they had no hand in when an opponent gets sick or when somebody else happens to them. And yeah, Kevin Holland gets a fight next week. Great. He gets to prepare for somebody on a week's notice. Awesome. Must be thrilled. Got to be better deals, but I don't get to write them. So that's just going to be what it's going to be. Thanks for listening. Catch the Luke Thomas show live and in its entirety weekdays from three to 6 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM Fight Nation channel 156 on Twitter. Follow at L Thomas News and the channel at MMA on Sirius XM.